Hey there, my name is Madison and I'm one of the pastors at Kainos Church in Portland, Oregon. This teaching you're about to listen to is from one of our Kainos collectives. These gatherings happen once a month, typically the first Sunday of the month, and serve as a time for us to worship together and learn from the scriptures. On the following Sundays of each month, we gather in smaller groups inside homes. We call these Kainos communities. Here we share a meal and discuss the Bible together. For more information about Kainos, feel free to visit kainospdx.org. The hope of Kainos Church is that we are people finding fresh and fulfilled life in Jesus. I had a question posed to me this week. What moment marks the start of the fall season? The official answer is the autumn equinox, according to Google, which will take place at approximately 11.49 p.m. on Friday, September 22nd this year. But I'm not looking for the textbook answer. I'm looking for what is the moment that makes it feel like it's fall? What is the real answer? Some of us might say it's the moment that this comes out. Yeah, the pumpkin spice latte, right? It was like mid-August. I was on my way to work. I needed a coffee. I got in line. There's this huge line at Starbucks. I'm like, what is going on? And then I realized it's pumpkin spice latte. But the middle of August is summer, in my opinion. So it cannot be that, okay? Maybe it's the moment that you are, you're on your daily commute, you're heading home, and you drive past one of these. What was previously an abandoned strip mall has suddenly overnight become a fully-fledged spirit Halloween store. Yeah, some of us love Halloween more than others, get more excited about this, okay? But I also don't think that that is the correct answer, because today is the start of fall. And about half of you, or less, know exactly what I'm talking about. You woke up this morning feeling like it's Christmas morning, and even being here at 10 a.m., I just have to say, I appreciate the sacrifice that it took to be here. You could be at home on your couch because today, folks, is the first day of the NFL season. Whoa! Yes, but actually, technically, it's the first Sunday of the NFL season, okay? Because on Thursday night, I don't know if you guys saw, but my Detroit Lions, let me tell you, they took down the defending Super Bowl champions on the road in Kansas City, okay? I am 28 years old. In my 28 years of living, I have never, ever been more excited about anything the Detroit Lions have done as I was about this win. Want to know? We are in first place in the NFL. Maybe it's only for two days until the rest of the teams play a game. But today, we are in first place, okay? So if you know another Lions fan in your life, let them know that you're happy for them, okay? But chances are... You don't know any Lions fans. And there's two reasons for that. Number one, we're a long ways from Detroit, Michigan. And number two, the Lions lose a lot. Okay? And typically, people don't like cheering for teams that lose. They like cheering for teams that win. Okay? In fact, if you were to think about what football teams you can name off the top of your head. Anyone here like not a big football fan, but you can maybe name a couple teams? Yeah, Justin, give me a football team. Patriots. Patriots. You know why he knows the Patriots? Because they're what? Because they won seven Super Bowls. Bailey, what's the football team you know? Ooh, okay, yeah. That kind of doesn't work with my analogy at all. <laughs> okay, yeah. Most of the time, okay, we know teams. Teams are popular when they win a lot. Okay, I taught middle school for a couple of years, and the, the most popular team amongst my middle school students was the Kansas City Chiefs. Okay? Even though when I was a middle schooler, living in the Midwest, no one was a Chiefs fan. And that's because back then they lost. And over the last four years, they've won two Super Bowls. People like rooting for teams that win. Okay? Outside of neighborhoods with a 503 area code, 
you're going to find a lot more Golden State Warriors fans than Blazers fans. Why is that? Well, because they won four championships over the last 10 years. Okay, now, what does this all have to do with the passage that Wes just read for us a few moments ago? In American culture, we often correlate growth to success, victory, and health. We see a business growing, and we think it must be successful and well-run. Okay? Take any of the recent tech boom startups, Airbnb or Uber, for example. Okay? Uber has exploded in its growth over the past half decade. In 2015, the number of Uber users, which by the way, that's kind of difficult to say, Uber users, in 2015 was 11 million. Today, it's 137 million users on Uber. They're running the taxi industry into the ground as their growth has skyrocketed. So that must mean that they're a well-run institution, right? Well, in 2022, Uber reported a net loss of $9.1 billion with a B. (laughs) It's the fourth straight year that they've been in the red. Uber drivers are quitting at massive rates because they are not receiving livable wages despite driving even at the surge hours late at night. You see, the more we look under the surface, we will find that growth does not always mean that things are healthy. And the inverse of that statement can be true as well. But nevertheless... That mindset has impacted the way that we as Americans think about many things, including even the church. The goal of many churches is to grow by having the coolest music, the most eloquent teachers, or the most followers on Instagram, which means an increase in funding and ability to expand and to grow upwards higher and higher and higher. And yet we've seen how this can quickly lead to corruption, right? There are churches that have positioned themselves as having celebrity pastors, which by the definition of a pastor should be an oxymoron, right? But they do this to attract more people to their church. Last year, uh, a janitor for a large church in Texas was cleaning things. And in the walls of a building, he had found wads of cash stuffed into the walls of the building. The church was trying to hide the money from the IRS, okay, so that they could use it to build more things, do more things, right? There's a story of a a pastor who the church bought thousands of copies of his book with uh, tithe money so that his book would be on the New York Times bestseller list. Okay, but why are these people doing this? I actually don't think it's always with just evil intentions in mind. As wild as it seems and as antithetical as it may be to the teachings of Jesus, I think that much of this is done in the name of growth. Right? We feel that we have to grow the church at any means necessary, even though that means illegally hiding money or, you know, scamming the New York Times bestseller list or whatever it might be, okay? But what does the Bible tell us about the growth of the church? Is it something that we should care about and work for? Is it something we should just offload to a pastor or a religious leader who does this for a living? What role, if any, are we supposed to play in it? That is what I'm excited to talk about with you this morning and throughout the month of September in our kindness communities. But before we go any further, uh, I'd invite you just to pray with me for a moment. God, we give you thanks for um, what you've been teaching us this summer through the book of Acts. And as we come to a close uh, in this passage, Acts 2, 42 through 47, God, we ask that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds. God, would you give us wisdom and would your, um, your presence, would your identity, who you are, would it be made known to us in a deeper way this morning? Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. 
So for the past four months, we have been working through the same passage of scripture that Wes just read, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. The author of the book of Acts is uh, Luke. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Uh, And in this book, he's describing what the earliest church in Jerusalem was like. And he tells us what this community committed themselves to. Luke tells us that they committed themselves to consuming scripture and the apostles' teaching. And so during the month of May, we talked about this idea. What does it look like for us to consume scripture in community and in our individual lives? In June, we talked about how the early church lived generously. They gave out of their means to one another, and when they had needs, they asked for help. So we talked about what it would look like for us to live out those same values of generosity today. In July, we focused on the early church meeting together in homes and public spaces, and how they ate meals, and it says that they enjoyed one another's company. And so for the month of July, we just spent the whole summer hanging out, barbecues, timbers games, kickball. And in August, we honed in on the rhythm of prayer. We spent our collective practicing prayer together and seeking ways to implement it into our lives, starting with just small and steady rhythms of prayer that we can practice. And that brings us to the final sentence of Acts 2, 42 through 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In other words, the church grew. And when I say the church, I don't mean that a building got bigger because the church did not own a building. No cathedrals or auditoriums had been built yet. And as we've read many times this summer, the church primarily met in homes. When I say the church, I also don't mean that an institution grew because the early church was a grassroots eclectic group, not an institution or a business. And even still, when I say the church, I don't mean that a brand of church or denomination of church or a specific congregation grew because they didn't even have those categories. When I say that the church grew, what I mean is that a diverse group of men and women from different generations, different countries, different ethnic, racial and social backgrounds, folks from various levels of income and social standing, their community grew. Acts is simply telling us that more people, different types of people became a part of this community. And next month at our collective, we are going to have a little birthday celebration, our second birthday as a church community. Yes, I'm very excited. I'm hoping we'll have cake again. That's been my number one request. I'm going to bring a cake. No one else does. Uh, So we'll celebrate our birthday next month. Uh, But we're also going to begin going through the whole book of Acts together. I promise we'll go through more than just these five verses that we've been focusing on all summer. We're going to start in Acts chapter 1, work through the whole book of Acts. And as we read this, we're going to see how the church grew from a group of Jesus' closest friends into a worldwide community of believers and that same Messiah. But what does that mean for us today? We've spent the summer talking about prayer and then trying to apply that to our lives. Talking about generosity and then trying to apply that to our lives. But when we read that God added to their number daily those who were being saved, how are we supposed to apply that? To our lives. To me, especially as I've read this for the past couple weeks, I've felt like ah, this doesn't quite fit as neatly, maybe, as prayer or generosity does. So, first, I think it's important for us to begin with nothing more or less than what the passage tells us. It says that God added to their number daily those who are being saved. And from this point forward, I have to tell you that this idea has been a challenge to me pretty much my whole life for a couple of reasons. Number one, I am an Enneagram wing, I'm an Enneagram 2 wing 3, uh, which may mean nothing to some of you, but some of you may completely get what I'm about to say. Everything in my brain is telling me all the time that I need to do, do, do. I feel a significant burden to help others that can even manifest itself as a significant weight on my mind, my body, my soul. 
And no matter what your Enneagram type is, I'm guessing that you feel burdens in your life too. Maybe you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders when it comes to your job or your education or providing for your family, raising your kids, whatever it might be, we all feel significant burdens. And that same way of thinking about feeling burdens, right? That can affect the way that we view Jesus, his mission, and the church. And to be fully transparent with you, I've been in therapy for almost a year now. And one of the main things, if not the main thing, that drove me to going to a therapist regularly was the burden I felt to help others as a new father, as a husband, and as a pastor of this church. I've laid in bed at night many times, tossing and turning over the feeling that I won't do a good enough job to help you, which may sound silly, but it, it has weighed on me significantly, right? I've had seasons of deep anxiety because I'm afraid that in my desire to help others, I will hurt them instead. And I felt a burden for those who don't know Jesus. I felt that the great commission, right, that Jesus talks about at the end of the gospels that we read together, I felt that it's a weight on my back as if God's mission depends on me. And maybe you've experienced some of that too in your life. But friends, I've grown increasingly convinced that this passage and the mission of the church that we read about in the book of Acts is not something that God intended to feel like a weight on our back, but rather that God has lifted a weight off our shoulders. Amen. Right? <laughs> Thanks, Ron. <laughs> One of my favorite old books is called Knowledge of the Holy. It was written by a pastor named A.W. Tozer about 60 years ago. And the sixth chapter of the book is titled The Self-Sufficiency of God. And when I read it, it challenged me to the very core of who I am. And it challenged me again over this past month as I've been thinking about this passage. There's a a paragraph that reads this. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. Probably the hardest thought for all our natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need our help. Even that word egotism just struck me a little bit because I'm like... I like to think of myself as being real humble. Okay? The Enneagram type 2, actually the besetting sin of an Enneagram 2 is pride. Feeling that everyone needs you all the time. And even feeling for me that God needs me to accomplish his mission in the world. And I can distinctly remember setting the book down with an uneasy feeling like a pit in my stomach. right? Because this is how I think. Everyone needs me all the time. Right? God's mission in the world feels like it depends on me. But as I read this, I realized that that couldn't be farther from the truth. I felt like the scientists, you know, who discovered that the earth is not the center of the universe with the sun rotating around it, but that they actually had an inverse understanding of reality, right? It was like reorienting a whole way of seeing reality. I am not at the core, right? God is. He is the one who saves, right? I'm not the center of the universe. He is. But as I sat there with my book, I asked myself, If this new view of God for me, where he is the one who saves, where he is the one who grows the church, would this proper view of God weaken the call of living out his mission in my life or in our church family or in the lives of those around me? Because honestly, from the exact moment that I chose to follow Jesus, I've made it my goal to try to teach others about him. I've led conferences and events to focus on living out God's mission. And through all of this, I internalized a message and I even taught a message sometimes, if I'm being really honest that made it seem as if God's mission in the world was just hanging in the balance. And if we didn't do it just right, it would fail. So what would happen, I asked myself, 
If instead of thinking that God needed me, I saw him as self-sufficient. Would it change the way I live? Would it make me less inclined to live out his teaching and his mission in my life? And so I kept reading Knowledge of the Holy. And this is what Tozer had to say. The truth about God will, when viewed in its biblical perspective, lift from our minds the exhausting load of pressure and encourage us to take the easy yoke of Christ. It's beautiful. Jesus wants to take the cross, the burden, the hard things in our life that we carry. And instead he asks us to take an easy yoke. A yoke was something that animals would use to carry. And Jesus says, my, my yoke is easy. The, the burdens of life are heavy, right? My yoke is easy. It's light. I want to take from you that exhausting load of pressure. Because while God is the one who saves, right? He also invites us to participate with him in the family business of loving others, right? His business is loving the world. And he invites us just to participate with him in that mission, right? This past week, I got coffee with a friend of mine named Sean Tomei. Uh, Sean spoke at our collective in July. Uh, he's awesome. Uh, I shared with him about this passage from Acts 2 and how it felt really challenging for me, particularly, to teach on it. And after listening to what I had to say, he shared an analogy with me that really resonated, okay? Sean's analogy was about surfing because Sean is a surfer. And as I thought about trying to explain his analogy, I came to the conclusion, y'all, that I might not be the best person from our church to explain surfing to you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you a clip of two people from our church surfing, okay? The first you'll see in just a moment. The second will be me. And after watching these two videos, you let me know who you think should explain a little bit about surfing, okay? Here you go. Video number one. Yes, surfing clip number two, just as elegant. <laughs> yeah. So, Kyle, I'd love to invite you up here. If you can tell us a little bit about surfing. Can you guys give Kyle a round of applause? Okay. All right. So, Kyle, can you give us a few tips about surfing? Yeah. Um, I would say the two basic things. There's a lot. <laughs> More than meets the eye. Um, but two basic things are pop-up. You notice in my video... Uh, one swift motion. So, yeah. Mm. Boom! There. Look at that. If wow. You, <laughs> if you, uh, that's you, not what I did in my video, by the way. No, I mean you, you try and make it. Maybe. <laughs> uh, that's actually my brother's board on there. I know that's the Brady board. That is. Yes. Um, but yeah, one swift motion is great. So now you're on the board, right? And then yeah. when it comes to turning, it's eyes and hips. So you will go where your eyes go, mm. and then to get there, um, your hips don't like try to do your feet. Or your shoulders, twist your hips, because that's how you're going to get to where your eyes go. Beautiful. The two basic things are how to surf. Great. Okay. Something else that I've learned about surfing is sets, sets of waves. Can you tell us about that as well? Yeah. So here's where it gets complicated. So it's what is going on outside of the water, and then there's the local conditions, right? So set is like swell period, swell height, swell direction. So what's coming in from the sea. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what deter or what you would, we would call like a set. So if the conditions are not good... Um, the sets aren't going to be very good. It's going to be constantly just washing machine waves coming and coming and coming. But when the waves are good, a long period swell, there's breaks between sets. 
Great. So sometimes, uh, and this is the waves come from long ways away, they, group, may come in, they come in groups because they join together, and so that's why there's gaps in between things. So sometimes you sit and you wait for literally like 20 minutes, and it's just like a lake out there, and you're just having a good time, and then it's like, all right, you start to see something, like, oh, there's a set, and everyone's like scrambling and trying to get in the right spot. Yep. Um, so sometimes it can be long waits, uh, and also, sometimes there's two different swells coming where they'll join together and there's like a mega set mm -hmm. and it's like unexpected. So it's great. Anything else? I Perfect. Can Last question for you is who do you think is the greatest surfer of all time? Or living right now, maybe. Kelly Slater. Kelly Slater. <laughs> Kelly Slater. Okay. Thank you. Very Let's give Kyle a round of applause. Okay. Kelly Slater. I want to tell you a little bit about this guy. I'm going to expand on this. I can I, I did some research. Okay. Because... I gotta learn a little bit more about surfing. Okay, Kelly Slater has won the World Surf League Championship 11 times. 11 times. He's considered to be the GOAT, the greatest of all time by many in the surf community, including Kyle. I didn't even prep him with that question. I was just <laughs> hoping that's what you would say. And in the mid-2010s, Kelly Slater did something rather remarkable. Okay, Kelly Slater created the perfect wave. Now, if you're asking yourself, how does a human create a wave? Great question. Let me show you. This is 18556 Jackson Avenue. 700 meters long and 150 meters wide, Kelly's Pool is actually a basin. An abandoned water ski lake that KS Wakefield purchased in 2014 for $575,000. While other wake pools use tanks and air pressure, paddles, and plungers, Kelly's Wave is made using this massive 100 ton pulley driven hydrofoil, lovingly known as the battleship of the train. It involves something like 150 truck tires and moves at 30 k's or 18 miles an hour. The foil cuts through the water moving into the side, not up, creating a soliton or single wave that's hauntingly similar to an ocean wave, but more perfect. Did you catch that? It's similar to a wave, but more perfect. Okay? Kelly Slater spent half a million dollars creating the perfect wave, a wave that is the same every single time. And like most things in America, he then commercialized it. <laughs> so you can now visit the Kelly Slater Surf Ranch. And after paying a lot of money, you can surf this perfect wave without having to wait for a good set, right? Or being challenged by maybe a bigger wave than you were used to. And my friend Sean, after telling me about the Kelly Slater Surf Ranch and the perfect wave, he looked at me and he said, Jake, I think this is a picture of what the church often tries to do when it comes to God's mission. We try to create a perfect wave. Especially in the Western church, the American church, with our money and our resources, we try to create programs and churches where, like a perfect assembly line, folks can just step right in, ride the wave, and experience God. Perfect a perfect life. We think that brighter lights, bigger stages, cooler music will help save more folks. We think it's on us to create the perfect wave so that others can be saved. And Sean said to me, Jake... Our job was never to create waves because God, God is the one who creates the waves. You see, his wave is the movement of God and people and in spaces, right? We can't manufacture a movement of God. All we can do is follow him and enjoy him, enjoy where his spirit leads. We don't need to feel the pressure or burden to create waves because that is out of our hands. We don't need to feel the, the weight of saving everyone, of growing the church, because even that is out of our hands. We are not the ones who save. That job belongs to God. So instead of feeling this burden to create a perfect wave, I think that God is inviting us 
to simply grab a surfboard, go out in the ocean, and enjoy surfing. He invites us, right, not to, to fabricate, fabricate or crank out spiritual results. He is asking us to just notice where he's at work and to enjoy him. Notice what he's doing, right? To see what he is already up to and just join him, right? He invites us to enjoy the, the moments of quiet sets, right? Kyle talked about how there's sometimes a set where, you know, for a long period of time, it's just like a lake. And I don't know about you, if you've ever had a season within your faith where things felt like just dead, not a lot's happening. I've heard people call those dry seasons of faith. And I want to challenge myself on that because it's often actually in those seasons where God's inviting us to be still, to find him in the little things, right? Actually, some of the most beautiful moments that I've ever had on a surfboard have been as I've just sat and just enjoyed, right? Being in the water, being alive, seeing the sun set, right? Yeah, there's actually so much for us to experience in those quiet in-between moments. But he also invites us to ride the waves, small ones and big ones, right? To enjoy seeing him at work, to enjoy being in community and see how God is working in the lives of others, to see him do things that are simple but beautiful and to see him do things that are miraculous, right? Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says that God wants to do immeasurably more than all we could ask for or even imagine. And the cool thing is that I've actually seen that through our church, right? I've seen folks, right, who I had no connection to that came, became a part of Kanas, and, and I've just seen God do something incredible in their life. I think about our friend David, who just moved back to Arizona, right? Who spent one exact calendar year, 365 days, almost to the day with us, and just watching God work in his life was incredible, right? And it continues to be amazing. Now, a wave has led him back to Arizona and he is uh, doing awesome work there. It's been so cool to see how God is at work and figure out, hey, how can we partner with God and with David to see, right, his faith grow? And how can we allow him to, to do the same in our lives, All right? As we enjoy riding this wave, God invites us to invite others along for the fun, Okay. My freshman year of college, I was living in California, and I really, really wanted to learn how to surf. In fact, actually my whole life, I had this longing to surf. Anybody watch Rocket Power when you were a kid? Okay, I loved Rocket Power, and I wanted to surf, but I grew up in Kentucky, far, far away from an ocean. And I had pictures, right? Uh, Sports Illustrated for Kids magazine. I would cut out any pictures they had of surfing. I would put them up on my walls. I wanted to be a surfer. So then I moved out to California, and I I was dedicated to become a surfer. I bought a surfboard. And for a full year, I would go out in the water alone and just get pitted over and over and over again. Getting pitted is what you saw happen to me in that video. (laughs) Okay? It means getting destroyed, not surfing the wave. I didn't have anyone to help me learn. And to be honest, I started to lose interest in surfing altogether. And that is when I met Kyle Arneson and his brother Brady. See, Kyle and Brady were living in Hawaii at the time. And I, through a connection with a mutual friend, got to go out and visit them. While I was there, they invited me to join them and surf. I was excited, but I told them, y'all, I'm not very good, and I don't even have a board. And they told me not to worry, right? They gave me one of their boards. You saw, actually, it's your brother Brady's board. And they helped give me some helpful tools and tricks to feel more comfortable getting up. And by the end of the week, I'd fallen in love with surfing, right? Because instead of trying to do it all by myself, I had someone come alongside me, right? Right? Now, they couldn't do the surfing for me, 
Right? <laughs> you could have tried to get on my board. It might have been a little difficult. Okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay? What he did was say, hey, here's some things that have been helpful for me. Wax your board. Had no idea. Okay? Do a straight push-up. I was trying to do this thing where I, like, get on both of my knees and I'm, like, falling over sideways. Okay? I didn't really know what to do. I was trying, but it's really hard to do by myself. I needed someone to come alongside me to help give me some helpful tools to encourage me. Right? I think I, I rode one way for like two seconds. They were hooping and hollering for me, acting like I, you know, I just surfed this killer wave. It was like ankle height. I'm like, yeah. okay. But I felt alive and they encouraged me. And when I fell, they, you know, they didn't tell me that I sucked and I should go home. They encouraged you, get back on your board, just keep going. Okay? And friends, this to me is a great example of what the Bible calls discipleship. Discipleship is not creating waves. Right? Discipleship is simply inviting others to experience God alongside of us. Right? When Kyle thinks of surfing, I don't think he feels burdened to surf. I would guess that he feels alive, free, full of joy to do something that he loves. And in the same way, discipleship doesn't need to feel weighty or scary or burdensome. It is an open invitation to enjoy the love of Jesus and to welcome others along for the ride. So our practice for this month of September is discipleship. We're going to spend time this month discussing what it means to trust God and his self-sufficiency to save others, all the while responding to his invitation to enjoy him and invite others to do the same. I think that some of us, we need to be reminded right, by one another that we are free from the weight of saving others. And also, <laughs> we need to be reminded that we do still get to play a special and important role in loving the world around us. That our life is more than just our careers or hobbies or families because we get to share the love of Jesus with others. We want to talk about what it looks like to live into this holy invitation in our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, and families. We want to share ideas within our kindness communities about how to love others well. How to share our faith in ways that aren't dogmatic or pressuring right, or shoving something down somebody's throats, but are meek and gentle. Because those are the words that Jesus used to describe himself. And he invited us to live the same way. And finally, we want to offer up a tool for discipleship that has been extremely helpful for the Watsons and us Navies, a tool that our friend Sean Tomei taught us about. This tool is called DMM, or Disciple Making Movements. It is a tool primarily used uh, and was created by Jesus followers in developing countries in places like South America, Southeast Asia, and Africa. It's a set of questions that you can work through with a friend, a colleague, a neighbor, a family member. It's not like a workbook or anything. It doesn't require you to have perfect answers, right? Because the goal isn't for you to shove what you believe on someone else. It's to simply ask thoughtful and engaging questions that someone can reflect on and experience Jesus' teaching in a personal and comfortable way. And if that sounds familiar at all, it's probably because this is exactly what we do on Sundays in our kind of communities, right? What is this teaching us about God? What's this teaching us about the world? What's this teaching me about myself? You can watch a movie and ask yourself those questions. You can read a, a novel and ask yourself those questions. You can read a passage of scripture and ask yourself those questions, right? And anyone, regardless of their background in life, can engage with those questions. So that may feel really familiar to you because we do it all the time in our kindness communities. But if that is something that you are curious about, a tool that might be helpful for you to use elsewhere in your life, maybe you have a coworker or a family member or a friend who has just started asking questions about Jesus, has been showed curiosity about things and you want to just engage with them, right? I really was eager to surf, but I needed someone to walk alongside me, right? I needed Kyle. 
I needed his brother Brady, right? I felt so much more comfortable. I enjoyed surfing so much more when I had community to walk alongside me. And there are so many folks in our lives that are probably feeling the same way about the idea of Jesus, about faith, right? Maybe they're interested, but how, how do I actually do this? What does it look like to live it out? I've seen a lot of bad examples. It's probably how a lot of people feel, right? So what does it look like to walk alongside someone and just ask engaging, thoughtful questions, right? So if that tool is something that you would be excited to use elsewhere in your life, we would love to, one of us would love to grab coffee with you, tell you how it's been helpful for us uh, and share a little bit more about that, okay? So as we finish our time together this morning, um, I would love to invite you to join me in a moment of prayer. Last month, we practiced a few different types of prayer together, one of which is called a breath prayer, right? We talked about intercessory prayer, praying for others, uh, listening prayer. A breath prayer is where typically, right, we think of a short phrase, something that will be helpful for us. And as we breathe in, we say one phrase. And as we exhale, we say another phrase. And we just repeat that a few times together. Okay. So the breath prayer I want to invite you to participate in with me is this. As we breathe in, I receive your freedom. And as we exhale... I release my burden to you. I found this type of prayer to be extremely helpful for me personally, especially when I feel a little overwhelmed or anxious. And especially when I'm trying to take a really complicated idea from a sermon or a podcast or something and start to apply it to my life. That God is actually releasing us from a burden of feeling that we have to save the whole world. He's actually freeing us to enjoy him and invite others to do the same. So what I'd love to do is just practice this four or five times. Okay? And at the end of us practicing this, I'll close us in a spoken prayer. Okay? So if you would, breathe in with me. I receive your freedom. I release my burdens to you. I receive your freedom. I release my burdens to you. I receive your freedom. Release my burdens to you. I receive your freedom. God, I release my burdens to you. God, we give you the burdens of our life, God, of our careers, our families, our mental health, our physical health, God, all the things that affect us and are affecting those we love, the pressure that we feel, God, we release those things to you. We give you that burden. And God, we thank you that in return, (laughs) you give us freedom to experience you, to love you, to enjoy you, God, and to invite others to do the same. So God, this week, as we go back into our daily lives, our workplaces, our homes, the places where we take up space. God, we ask that increasingly you would remind us that you have taken the burden, the weight of sin and shame, of having to fix, to save the world. And in return, Jesus, you've given us freedom to know you and to be known by you, to love you and to be loved by you. So God, we ask that you would allow us that you would take our burdens from us and that you would give us your freedom this week. Give us eyes to see folks in our world, folks in our lives already, 
folks who may come into our lives this week, who may have a hunger to be a part of a community, to know you more deeply, Jesus. Give us eyes to see and wisdom, God, to engage in meaningful conversations and relationships, to love the world, Jesus, as you've loved us. We give you these things in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.